Welcome to the Arbor Vitae podcast, promoting virtue in woodworking. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Jonathan Conrad. And we'll be your co-hosts. Our mission is to explore how different virtues influence the way we live and work in the shop, how virtues contribute to the fruitfulness of our labor, and to highlight those who are making significant contributions to this great woodworking community. What are you working on, Jonathan? So what I'm not working on is the bunk beds. I always say bunk beds, but they're not bunk <laughs> beds. They're just well, twin beds. You're not working on the bunk beds. I am so not good. working on them because they're done. <laughs> awesome. So that's been a three-month labor of love. Wow. They are in the garage waiting for their birthday. So tomorrow night we'll be setting them up and then fighting with them for a month to stay in the room. <laughs> so that's great. We're looking forward to that. It should be a lot of fun. <laughs> so now I that that's off the bench, what I I started a small project last night where I'm basically making a small stand mm-hmm. to hold a crucifix and a little candle. I saw that. And basically, I want for bedtime, especially now with beds versus cribs, mm-hmm. is to have a calm, you know, read a story do prayers, wind down, get into bed. And so the crucifix and the candle, and I'm getting a small statue of Mary, Okay. will be part of that routine. Nice. So that was a fun little project. I'm almost done with it. You know, and it'll take maybe an hour or two. Mm-hmm. And it's always fun to wrap up a really big project with a small, quick one. Yes, Definitely. So that's what's on my bench. How about you, Adam? Um, Nothing has really been on my bench lately. I've been working a little bit more on those bunk beds, but really I haven't... I think I've had one day in the shop uh, with those bunk beds since the last time we talked. We did get the uh, long sides of the full bed on the bottom done. So now we just need to attach the bed hardware but what we've been working on is we are building a garage, like a detached garage for our house. Right now, um, my woodworking shop I share with my brother who lives about half an hour away, and that's in his basement. So It's a it's, long drive. Yeah, it's really, you know, if you think about it, when you have what little shop time you have, take an hour of that away for driving. You know, half an hour there, half an hour back. I usually only have an hour. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and Or, you know, you get home at the end of the day after working all day. The last thing you want to do, especially if you're commuting, is drive another half an hour just so yeah, that you absolutely. can go have some leisure time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, we're working on building a two-car garage, one bay of which is going to hold, like, our lawn tractor and... My mom has a a handcrafted soap business, and they do craft shows and things, and so she's got like a tent and tables and things like that, and my dad has been helping her with it since he retired, but they're going to keep all of that stuff with the tractor in the other side of the garage, and then one half of it, probably more than half, will be, I mean, let's be honest, will be all of the woodworking stuff, so I'm excited because we're finally going to have like fixed duct work. Uh, we're going to be able to plug everything in all at the same time. I mean, don't get me Versus wrong. switching up plugs. We have, Wait, are they both plugged in at the same time? Right. No, Put we it have, on the other breaker. We have one outlet. 
Jonathan. <laughs> one so do we. outlet in the shop, and it's just nuts. I mean, we can't, we can barely run a dust collector and a, a lunchbox planer at the same time. Um, so, I can't even do that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, the struggle, the struggle is real. So anyway, that's, that's what we've been working on. We're about to uh, pour the concrete cores in the blocks for the foundation. So I'm really excited about that. It's, you know, we have a footprint now. It, right. You know, so it, it looks like a shop and, you know, you can stand in it and think, oh, well, the table saw is going to go there and the fan <laughs> saw is going to go there. And it's great. So that's what's been. And, but you guys shop. are doing all the work yourself. We are, yeah, and uh, if our listeners will remember from last episode, I mentioned that my dad taught carpentry for, uh, I said 20 years, it's actually over 30 years, um, and so he is building all of it ourselves. Basically, the only thing that we're not going to do is the electricity, because you need to be a licensed electrician. Uh, we're probably going to run a lot of the wiring ourselves, but you need to have a licensed, licensed electrician actually make all of the connections and things. That makes to sense pass expe- to pass inspections. So, um, yeah, it's it's exciting. It's very very exciting. Hopefully, by spring ish, we'll be ready to move all of the tools in. We hope to have it under roof by the time you know the first snow hits, which is usually in December ish. Right. So. I think everyone's dream is to build their own shop. Yes. At least I mean I've got the same dream. Like that would be amazing. Yeah, have you been? Um, do you follow the Wood Whisper on all the social media and stuff? I do. It looks like he's moving. Yeah, he's moving to Denver, um, which is really interesting. But he posted this just depressing little video of I saw that his shop, and it's this big, huge dream shop, and there were two ladders in it, and <laughs> and a camera, <laughs> and a camera. It was yeah. so sad, but you know, good for him. You know, it's it's he's moving for his kids which is awesome because he said he wants them to be able to, you know, run around and play outside. And they can't really do that in Arizona without going to the park, which, you know, is kind of a hassle. So they also have no lumber in Arizona. Yeah, seriously. That's he talk about a change going from there to Denver. I mean, right. <laughs> you can't swing a dead cat without hitting lumber in Denver. So <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> As my mentor at Shepherd used to say. It's um, a good one. Yeah, it's. I like it. <laughs> Hopefully it didn't offend any of our listeners. Speaking of our listeners, we got some great feedback from last week's challenge question. Um, this is a new show, of course, and one of the things that we want to do every episode is when we talk about our topic for that day, we want to pose a challenge question for our listeners that gets you guys to think about how our topic applies to your life and your woodworking. Um, so Jonathan, what was our topic for last week and what was our challenge question? Well, our topic was purpose and prudence, right? Prudence. And I threw you a curveball and just said, Hey, why don't you define prudence <laughs> on the air in real time? <laughs> Go. Yep. <laughs> Which was not cool. That's okay. We should have been prepared. Well, it's, it's funny because we use it to, we talk about it all the time and use it in sentences and use it. And we're talking about faith and prayer and uh, you understand it, mm-hmm. but then trying to turn around and define it to somebody is something that's so complex. Right. It's 
often left speechless. Mm-hmm. So we did our homework, and what did we come up with? <laughs> we came up with a very basic definition of prudence, which is great. So now that we can we can throw that out and get maybe some of our credibility back. Um, prudence, <laughs> prudence is using practical reason to determine what is good and right in every circumstance. And it's our conscience that guides our judgment. So basically, prudence is it's intimately tied to reason. You know, we are rational creatures. We can reason out whether something is good or not. And so prudence is the practice of applying that to practical situations to say, as things, as situations come up, this is good, this is not good, and to be able to act on that. And that's why we paired it to purpose Mm -hmm. and asking our listeners, challenging our listeners to think about why you're in the shop, what your goals are, what you're trying to accomplish, and pairing that with prudence because we both learn from our own experiences that it's an important uh, parallel to look at both and say, why am I doing this? What's my motivation? And that can help drive the decisions that you make. Right. And so we had some great responses from our listeners, which we wanted to share some of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, uh, we heard from Joseph, uh, who is at Furnished by Frasati on Instagram, um, and he, he gave a great little summary of his purpose. He said, uh, although my purpose has been in the making since I was a young boy and continues to evolve with time and discernment, to make a long story short, it's a combination of how I come close to God and help support my family financially, which is, I mean, it's awesome. It sounds like he knows exactly why he's woodworking, uh, he's definitely given thought to it and it sounds like it's being fruitful as well. Um, if it's absolutely, you know, um, the other common theme that we heard, uh, we heard from, uh, Aaron at Lazarus, Lazarus.design.build on Instagram, which by the way, Aaron, we're thinking about you and praying for you as you continue to recover from your surgery. Um, we heard from Chris at CRT builds on Instagram and Neil at the British woodworker, on Instagram. And um, another common theme was leisure time. It's a way of unwinding and uh, blowing off steam at the end of a work day, um, a hobby to make your spare time more enjoyable, which is another awesome purpose that I think a lot of our listeners will connect with, especially the ones who don't woodwork for profit all the time. Right. There's nothing wrong with it just being a hobby. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be profitable. It doesn't have to be a part-time job or a full-time job. You don't have to have a business. Right. It can just be fun and leisure. Definitely. And I think it's interesting. I would love to talk to some professional woodworkers or full-time woodworkers to see if they still find that sense of leisure in the woodworking that they do, you know, whether it's the woodworking that they do on the clock or if they also do like hobby projects for themselves on the side. Although I have a feeling it's probably like the shoemaker's children going without shoes. It's like they probably don't have time to build anything for themselves. (laughs) So the outdoor landscaper that has a disaster in their own backyard. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I hear a lot of those types of stories. Yeah. Anyway, well, speaking of, um, speaking of profit, that brings us very nicely into today's topic, which is profit and justice. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about justice first? 
which absolutely do we have a definition for justice we do excellent so what we came up with is and we didn't just make these things up we did some research and because we wanted an accurate definition we didn't want to just make up words or make up definitions so what we came up with is justice is the virtue of giving what is due to god and neighbor it's the quality of our work for a fair and just price and we wanted to pair the two together because profit is more than just monetary financial profit it's simply the reward that you get for doing the work that you do and so what is just is kind of the more i put into it the more i get out of it mm-hmm. and so we wanted to explore how this has impacted our uh, experiences and our work in the shop and look at what we've seen from others in the community sometimes i think justice is misused and sometimes i think it's easiest to look at what it's not you know what's not just and things like taking shortcuts on the quality of our work to save some time or save some money when we're really shortchanging our client or customer family or friends whoever we're doing the project for or you know selling ourselves short where we're undervaluing our own time where we've invested hundreds of hours in this product and we're either giving it away or charging way too little Mm -hmm. simply because we don't value the work that we're doing it's not that it's not quality work but we're not valuing it sufficiently you know, we're using low quality materials just again to cut costs, things like that. You know, the real it really comes down to did I do the best job that I could with the skills that I have, the tools that I have, the resources that I have? And that's really, you know, those are the types of questions you can ask to say, am I doing justice to myself and those that this hobby, this career is serving? Right. Yeah, at, at the end of a project, who is getting the better end of the deal? Is it you or your client? Did you take so many shortcuts that you're delivering a shoddy project where your customer is expecting something of a certain quality and you have sort of gone down on that quality to save some money and increase your profit margins? Which is not to say that all shortcuts are bad, Um, And one of the things that we're going to talk about later on in the episode is how to work with clients who can't pay the sort of premium price that handcrafted woodwork will justly demand. Um, So shortcuts are not evil here, but you and your customers, or, or, or if you're giving your product away, You need to think about the people who you want to give it to. You need to come to an agreement about what quality you want the end product to be and what shortcuts you are going to take. Um, But yeah, you're right. It is easier to think about what is not just. Um, And I think a lot of it is subjective or at least situationally relative. Um, And that's why we wanted to do this second We actually talked about this being our first topic, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we kept going back to all of this is dependent upon what your motivation is and what your purpose is. 
not every situation is the same. And it all kind of comes back to your purpose and your motivation. And so now that we've talked about that, and if you haven't had a chance, we'd encourage you to go back and listen to episode one to get better understanding of what we're talking about. But knowing your purpose is going to help make just prudent decisions uh, based on your motivation. And so what's works for a full-time woodworker might not work for a hobbyist and vice versa. Right. And so along those lines, what we'd like to do is share some personal stories. We don't claim to be experts on this subject matter, and we hope that that's not why you're listening to the show. Um, because yeah. <laughs> if it is, uh, I apologize. Right. <laughs> but if you'd like to hear what just two ordinary hobbyist woodworkers have to say about it, um, we will happily share our stories in the hopes that you can glean something from them. Um, Jonathan, I know your your story in particular is very attuned to this question of justice and profit. It is. And a lot of it's on the, I've learned some tough lessons. I'm grateful for those lessons, but they were tough lessons. And so let's go back a little bit in time, right? So a couple of years ago, our oldest Matthew was born five years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And we got some family pictures and we wanted to get them framed. And we looked at the quality of the frames and the cost of them. And it was terrible. The quality was terrible. They were made in China and they were fairly expensive, you know, unless you get really cheap frames, but the corners are already coming apart and they haven't even left the store yet. And so I was like, well, I've got a table saw. It can't be that hard to make a frame. So I made the frames for those, that family shoot. And my wife loved them. I loved them. And I actually showed them to the photographer that took the pictures and she loved them too. And so I started making more and more frames. Um, But pretty early on, I was thinking, oh, I could make some money doing this. And so I jumped a little bit too quickly into the, how can I make money doing this? And I was doing the best work that I could at the time, but because my focus was more on what's in it for me and not what it's, what's in it for those who are buying these frames or receiving these frames, it lended itself to taking shortcuts. You know, I was focused on the profit piece more than the quality piece. And not surprisingly, I struggled to sell the work. I ended up with a, you know, a sizable inventory of frames that I had made that no one purchased because the quality wasn't that great. And I wasn't being lazy. It's just I hadn't invested that much time into it. And so I continued doing this, though, making frames for us, making frames for family and friends, Christmas gifts and birthday gifts. And not surprisingly, over time, every frame I made was better than the last one. Mm-hmm. And we'll put in the show notes or a subsequent blog post. I'm going to do kind of an evolution of the frames. Because the difference between frame one and frame like 
I don't know, let's say 10 or 15 or whatever it was. I mean, it's night and day. Wow. And now I take pride in the work that I can do, the frames that I make now, because I've invested a significant amount of time in making them. And, you know, but that didn't happen overnight. And I wonder if, you know, if I had focused on the quality piece more early on, had I gotten to that point sooner. But it was just part of it that I learned. And it wasn't, you know, I learned it through practice and persistence and patience. Well, let's say I learned those things doing it. I did not go okay. in with patience. I came out with it. it. <laughs> I feel like that's pretty common. <laughs> yeah. It's not one of those things where you just are given patience. Maybe some people are, not me. But the because the moral of that story was selling a product, right, mm-hmm. requires an investment. And the more that you invest in that product, the more you're going to get out of it, the more your clients are going to get out of it. And I think that's the piece that's just. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't try and sell some of your first projects, mm-hmm. but give consideration to the investment that you've made in that version. If it's the first thing you've ever done, you've spent two hours making it, it's, you know, it's just that. Whereas if you've spent hundreds or thousands of hours making these things, you're going to become proficient. You're going to become an expert in that thing. And the quality of that work is going to show. And so that's kind of what I've learned from that that experience on what is just and what is profitable. And on the profit piece of it, you know, as I've grown in my faith also, I've come to appreciate and focus more on who I'm doing the work for because I'm not necessarily trying to make a profit. I'm not trying to buy all these tools. I'm trying to use the ones that I have. And because of that, my motivation has turned more towards the, the value that I'm, I guess the value that my clients are getting out of it. And it's more family and friends right now for me, which makes it even more fun and rewarding. Mm-hmm. And so the profit now is more on just the reward I get from seeing the joy on somebody's face and what I'm building. You know, the bookcases I built for my sister-in-law and the beds that I built for the twins that's kind of how it's trans transformed from the past to today. Excellent. Would you mind sharing a few of the shortcuts that you were taking that there are were plenty. not good shortcuts? Yeah. I mean, not to give away trade secrets and whatnot, but just so that we can further illustrate the difference between a good shortcut and a bad shortcut. Yeah. So, or maybe a just shortcut and an unjust shortcut would be a better way of phrasing it. Well, let me give an example. So, I don't know, it was two years ago, I did a batch of frames for a, a, local, a local shop. They make their own prints, like an, on an actual old printing press. Really cool wow. stuff. Wow. And so I showed them some of my frames thinking that they were a good match for them. And they love the frames. And so I made, I think I made 60 frames for them. Wow. 
But the frames that I showed were different than the ones I delivered. And the difference was, you know, the keyhole router bit? Yes. So on the ones that I showed them, it had a keyhole cut out on both the landscape and portrait side. So they could hang okay. at landscape or portrait and it hangs flush to the wall. Well, on the finished product, to save time, I just put those frame hangers. Oh, like the sawtooth yeah. ones? Okay. And gotcha. It wasn't intentional or necessarily malicious. I was just like, oh, these frames have taken forever. <laughs> I'll just use these things. It's like they won't notice it. They won't notice the difference. Mm-hmm. And when I brought the frames to them, you know, she loved the frames, but the first thing that she said was, these are different than the ones you showed me. And I was like, what do you mean? And she explained, and I was like, oh. And then she proceeded to tell me that the reason why she wanted to buy the frames for me in the first place was because of that attention to detail. Oh. And I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> I feel terrible now. So I took the frames. I took them back to the shop. I took those things out. I put all the keyholes in them. And I felt a lot better. I felt more satisfied because she actually appreciated that craftsmanship, the quality. And that's actually what drove that business in the first place. Wow. So, again, it wasn't intentional. um, But I kind of shortchanged myself. I shortchanged her. And... She called me out on it, which I was really grateful for. Right. Because it was acknowledgement that people do value quality. It's hard to remember that sometimes. And I think we forget it because you can get so many things so cheaply, so quickly on Amazon and other places. And, you know, maybe we I think we forget that people still appreciate good quality handcrafted items. And that they're willing to pay more. Like, the frames that I made for her were more expensive than the ones that she was getting somewhere else. Exactly. But she wanted to give me an opportunity to do the frames for her. Right. And she was willing to pay that price because you had put that little extra into it and she knew that it was good quality. So Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, one other thing I forgot to mention but I have to because it's just too funny. So I was going through the pictures of the frames that I've made over time, right? And the first frame that I ever made, I actually used butt joints. Really? Because I never, I didn't know how to do the mitered corners. Okay. And it's like, so that's a perfect example of kind of the evolution. Well, and and for our listeners who may not be familiar with these woodworking terms, <laughs> Good call. a butt joint <laughs> is uh, when you have two pieces of wood that there's no joinery involved. You're not really cutting them so that they interlock with each other. One is just butted right up against the other. So the miter joint is when you have the 45 degree angle on both of the pieces so that you have that line running through the corner. Whereas with a butt joint, you just kind of put the pieces up next to each other and either glue them or nail them or yeah, staple I just them or whatever. Them. Yeah. Um, and it's not a very, the reason we say it with a little bit of, I don't know if scorn is the right word, but just, you know, it's surprise in our joint. voices. Yeah. And it's not that strong because <laughs> right. The end grain, it's an end grain to long grain connection. And the end grain of a of wood, if you think of wood grain like a 
clump of straws. It, you know, the grain is like little hollow tubes, and that will suck up all of the glue in the joint, and you don't get a very strong bond when you just butt two pieces of wood up against each other. Right. Um, so. But I bring that up because I wasn't being lazy. It's the only thing I knew how to do. And so what I want to point out is that there's a difference between laziness and doing the best with the skills that you have. Yes. So you have to start somewhere. And if you start with butt joints, fine start there but don't stop there mm-hmm. keep working on improving what you do and you're going to be you're going to be surprised at what you're able to accomplish so adam what have you learned in your experience especially on like you know how to charge a fair and just price for a project maybe that you don't know how long it's going to take Right. Speaking of which, uh, I recently completed a set of six prayer benches for a church down in D.C. And I say prayer benches, it's an interesting design. I wasn't familiar with it before they asked me to build them. But they are basically small, single-person benches that you can kind of sit on while you're kneeling. So if you kneel on the ground, you would then put this bench over, I guess, your calves. And then you can kind of sit on it, and it takes a lot of the pressure off of your spine and enables you to kneel for a longer period of time. They look pretty comfortable. Yeah, they. I tried them, and maybe it was just because I had never used them. Um, I mean, I, I built them to the the specifications that I was given because the priest who ordered them had had one built for him that he used in his own personal prayer and he said that it was very comfortable and very ergonomic so I built them to his exact dimensions so I'm sure that in that case he got exactly what he wanted I for one did not find them comfortable but I'm also used to kneeling without any support there and so it you know I, I'm sure had I given them a lot of time and several chances, they would have become comfortable. But in any case, I had never built them before. So I could break them down and say, all right, I'm going to need to make these cuts. I'm going to need to do these to the pieces once I cut them. This is the joinery I'm going to use. I know about how long that takes. And when he came to me and asked for six of these, I gave him a quote to give him an idea of how much they would cost. And he agreed to that quote, and I started working on them. And it was not even close. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm i still... I, I'm an amateur woodworker, and I, I'm not... I, I would say that I'm maybe either at the end of a beginner woodworker or at the... Well, I'm probably at the beginning of an intermediate woodworker, is, is what I'd describe myself. So I feel like I should have had a better handle on... <laughs> how much time this was going to take me but add to that the fact that i'm just bad at estimating things in general no matter what it is and i think that's a guy thing probably yeah so at the end of this project i had these six benches that i had said i will sell you for you know x amount of dollars and it really should have been twice that so i was faced with a conundrum because on the one hand I 
I gave my word that this is what I was going to charge for these benches, and I was not about to break that. But at the same time, he had spoken of, you know, they were ordering these benches for a new contemplative prayer service that they were going to be starting. And he said he only wanted to order six of them at first because he wasn't sure how popular the service was going to be, but that if it was really popular and people liked the benches, he may be placing an order in the future. So I wanted to make sure that whether or not he chose to order those benches from me, he knew that they had, they were going to have to cost more, you know, because time. if he ordered them from me, I would want to be paid what I actually, uh, for, for the time that I actually put into them and not what I had mistakenly estimated. And if he, for whatever reason, decides to go to another woodworker, I don't want him to go to another woodworker and think that he's going to be able to get them for this price and then cause that woodworker to lose business because they're going to charge more. Right. So I prayed about it, and I spoke to a few of my uh, fellow woodworkers about it, including my brother, and what I came up with was I gave him a quote, or I gave him a, an invoice, rather, that had the actual price that I should have charged based on the actual hours that I worked on the project. Okay. But I added an adjustment to the bottom to bring it in line with the price that I had quoted him. And when I delivered the benches, I explained to him, I said, it ended up taking me a lot longer. Now, I did quote you this price, and I want to honor that because that's what I quoted. But I just want to let you know that in the future, I will have to charge more, and this is the price that I will have to charge in the future. And he was very appreciative of that. You know, he was appreciative of the fact that I was honest with him, uh, as well as respected the quote that I had given him. Right. So, you know, uh, he has not placed another order. That was at the end of September. So it's, I mean, it's only been a month. But, um, you know, I, I feel like he will have a better idea of what it takes to, to put into this these benches the next time he goes to place an order. And I feel like I've done my fellow woodworkers a service rather than just letting it go because I feel like people in general nowadays don't realize all of the time that it takes to put into these uh, this, this craft. Um, so I feel like I did a little bit to correct some of those misconceptions or at least prevent. I'm not saying that he thought that they should be less than what they are. It, it, it was totally on me, not him. I think um, it's smart, I did though. A little bit to prevent. Yeah, so. Um, because you honored your commitment. Right. And the woodworking community. Yeah, that was what I was going for. Um, but profit, profit comes in many forms. I mean, if there's, if there's one thing that we've taken away from today, it's that there are, there are, multiple kinds of profit whether it's monetary or spiritual or emotional or or uh, educational so for for monetary profit of course there's paying the bills and providing for your family if it's something that you do either as a primary or even a secondary source of income you know you want to be able to bring in monetary profit so that you can provide for yourself and your family Right, absolutely. Um, and there are some great examples of that in the community. Um, I know you had one that you wanted to mention. 
Yeah, so Evan Bustle is a guy that I've been following on Instagram for a while. And it's another one of those Instagram relationships. We talk often through Instagram. You know, I know a little bit about him. He knows a little bit about me. And he also does woodworking as a kind of a side thing. He's a full-time welder. And I'll be honest, the dude can weld. Like, <laughs> if you check out his Instagram feed, it's it's impressive. Yeah, but he can it also is very build. impressive. Uh, and he builds really awesome things. But the cool part is that, you know, because it's not his primary source of income, it's not his full-time job, you can see how it's a part of the family. His wife plays a very active role in the things that he builds. Okay. You know, they it's like kind of a, a husband and wife duo. They renovated a house. They, I mean, it was basically a flip. They lived there for a while. They renovated the home. They sold it, and they're on to their next home. Uh, but you, he's got his kids. He's got two boys. They're in the shop with him. And it's really cool to see how that difference of it being more on the hobby side than on the full-time primary source of income side, how that impacts how we incorporate it into our work and the type of profit that we're seeking. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, on the other side of that, from a hobbyist perspective, I mean, when I first got really into woodworking, um, I wasn't married, but when I got married, I spoke with my wife about funding the hobby because I felt really bad taking, I mean, we don't, we don't have a whole lot of money. We're, we're both, you know, just a couple of years out of college and she doesn't have a whole lot of hobbies that cost money like woodworking does. I mean, let's be honest, unless you're subsisting solely on, you know, inherited tools and pallet wood, you're going to spend money to, to do woodworking. Yeah. It's pretty expensive. If you want good tools, good wood, you're going to have to pay for it. And Maria doesn't have a lot of hobbies that cost the money that woodworking does. So when we got married and we were talking about finances, um, I was very adamant that I didn't want to just bleed the family bank account dry to feed this hobby that is really it at this point it's not a source of income for me it's just a hobby um, and I do sell a few things but what we did is we set up a, a separate bank account for woodworking and I, I know that we're not alone with this but it's basically the woodworking fund and anytime I do any kind of side work whether it's selling projects or um I'm also a, a singer and a composer, so anytime my music earns me money, um, you know, it goes into the woodworking fund. And basically, that money is there if we ever need it as a family, you know, if we ever have an emergency expense, I will not even hesitate to pull money out of the woodworking fund and give it to the family because ultimately that's more important. But when we don't have you know, that's not our sole savings either. So when we don't have emergency money that we need to pull out of there, I don't feel bad at all using that money for woodworking. And so it, it kind of, the hobby f starts to fund itself. And as I sell more, 
then I put that money in there and that pays for materials for the next project that I build for us or you know, the next tool that I need to buy or something like that. Um, I think that's really great advice for anyone looking to start woodworking mm-hmm. is find a way for it to pay for itself. Yes. Maybe you ask, again, if you're married, especially you've got a family, maybe there's some seed money. Like I want to take out 200 bucks mm-hmm. to, to kick this off, to get a couple of basic tools, like a handsaw and a drill or something like that. But from that point on, I'm going to try and find a way for it to fund itself. And it keeps you disciplined because it's like just because the money's in the bank account doesn't mean it's yours to spend on the hobby. Right. You know, I kind of made that mistake early on when I started because I said it was going to be a second source of income. It was technically the woodworking money, but my motivation was supposed to be to make a little extra for the family. And I ended up not because I spent most of it and I wasn't disciplined in, okay, I need, let's say $200 a month coming out of this into the family. So I can't spend this even though it's there because it wasn't mine. It was supposed to be the family's. So those are all really great ways of being disciplined, being prudent and just in, especially if it's a hobby, of being able to enjoy it without it having a huge impact or a burden financially on a, on the family. Right. The other thing that I did want to mention is non-monetary profit, that sort of spiritual or emotional or educational side of things. We mentioned the the whole learning of new skills, but I think beyond that, there's something to be said about making these things for other people, and that's independent of what you're getting paid to do. So I think, I hesitate to call it charity because the connotation of charity is, you know... Um, giving freely. Right. Well, I I should say the connotation of receiving charity, of being on the receiving end of charity is something that people shy away from. Yes. You know, but charity, the, you know, caritas, the Latin, it it is love, um, to, to love another. And, you know, we know that love is not a feeling. Love is an action. Love is something that you consciously choose to do. So when you are, when you're, doing something charitably when you're woodworking for charity you're not necessarily doing it out of pity or out of condescension it's out of love um to to sort of wrap all of this up what we want you our listeners to take away from this is it is just to be paid for your work in some form or another And we don't want you to underestimate your labor and the time that you put into woodworking and the materials. Um, We want you to take pride in your work and to do quality work and to be able to give that to other people. And we don't want you to be afraid to charge a just price when you do that. But we also want to 
help you to think about the other non-monetary ways of profiting from this. And of course it's going to be different. Like if this is your main source of income, you're not going to be able to afford to donate as much time and resources as someone who's only doing this as a hobby, who's doing it in their free time anyway. But it's something that you can think about and hopefully it will inform the intent behind your woodworking. Yeah, absolutely. And so we did a little bit of research and these are people that we've been following, at least I have for at least a year or two on Instagram that I think Same are here. perfect examples of the epitome of quality work, like the best quality I've ever seen and charging a good price for that work, which is totally justified because when you look at their work, you're just, wow, it's incredible. <laughs> so a, a good examples, Texas Heritage does some absolutely amazing leather work and a, and a whole bunch of other just awesome things. But the leather work is what really stands out that I, it's like, I want to get my whole hands on anything that he's made. I don't need right. any of those things because I still don't have any hand tools. I've got like four chisels. That's it. But he makes this, <laughs> um, I don't even know what the term is, but it's like a chisel belt or a rollout, right? To, to hold all of your chisels. Uh-huh. And the, the quality of the craftsmanship is just phenomenal. So there's a yeah. perfect example of somebody investing heavily in talent and using the highest quality materials and creating just a phenomenal product and charging a good fair price for it. You know, to charge anything less would be doing a disservice to his work and everybody else that does that kind of work. So we don't want to discourage people. We want to encourage them to do good work, do quality work and charge a good fair price for it bring back that value, that desire for quality handcrafted items, things that last for generations. I hope that when I'm older, I'll actually own things that are of good enough quality where I can hand them down. You know, that used to be the only way to do it. You build things that last (laughs) for generations and you hand them down for generations that's just the way it was and we've lost that a little bit but we've we're starting to rediscover that and i think it's fantastic Mm -hmm. sterling toolworks is another great example and he does metal work he has these dovetail markers that are the most beautiful thing i've ever seen from you know machining metal i mean just outstanding the product itself is a work of art like it could sit in a trophy case and just sit there and be awesome. <laughs> and then the other example is Lost Art Press, which is more on yes. the content side. It's not YouTube videos. It's not blog posts. It's physical books and physical DVDs that teach you the art of woodworking in a very phenomenal way. And the cool thing is that there's the quality of the materials, like the content in the books and the videos, but then there's also just the quality of the production of the book itself and the DVD itself. 
And again, there's a, another great example of think about the thousands of hours of woodworking that went in to being able to create a book and teach people about woodworking. Right. So you look at, right. oh, that book looks really expensive. But think about the time that went into it. And it's more than a fair price for what you're getting out of that content. Right. Not to mention the fact that, like you said, the quality of the books themselves. I mean, I, I placed my first order um, just a few months ago from Lost Art Press, and I knew that they were good quality. I mean, you can tell, uh, you know, they, they'll post a few shots of, of the books themselves, and, you know, they, they go into... Uh, descriptions of the kind of paper and binding and things that they use on the website but to hold these things in your hand it's it's a tome like it's not just a yeah. book it's a tome like you hold the there if you pick up any other book that has the same dimensions and a lost art press book that has the same dimensions the lost art press book is going to be heavier because it, it's it's better quality paper. It's like thicker paper. You know, the the binding is just gorgeous. And they have this wonderful, like, old-fashioned kind of, you know, like a cloth bound with stamped lettering awesome. and things. And, you know, you can see the... I can see them lighting up my bookshelf. I mean, they're easily some of the most gorgeous books yeah. that are on my shelf. And I can see passing them down to my sons, my... my children my grandchildren you know and they're going to be a valued part of my life and hopefully many other people's lives um so you know in that case i certainly don't mind paying a little bit more than what i would pay for any other book for something that's well made well researched and and created you know the the material is good and it's going to last for a very long time. And I think the same can be said about both Texas Heritage and Sterling Toolworks and hundreds of other people. Um, but those are just kind of the three that we wanted to yeah, if you, you know, highlight. If you want, if you have a desire to create a product, look at those, among others, for inspiration for what quality looks like. And if you strive to create products of a quality that is even close to the quality that they're doing, you are going to be very much fulfilled in that work. And so are your customers. And it could be your clients or just family and friends, but strive for that level of quality, knowing that you're not going to start there. Nowhere close. But right. you'll get there if you continue to work on it. And then the other set, uh, as far as resources that we wanted to share, and obviously these will be in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Todd Clippinger, I mentioned this, did a YouTube series on the business side of woodworking. And so he talks about kind of what he charges for his work, but then also did three interviews with three other woodworkers to talk about the business side of their woodworking. And so each one of those videos is fairly short, but they're packed full of great wisdom and advice from very, very successful, either full-time or part-time woodworkers. I would highly encourage you to go check those out. Um, 
and in those YouTube videos, you'll know there'll be links to where you can find each one of those creators. Right. So what are what's our challenge for our listeners this week? Our challenge is to spend some time thinking about last episode, which was what is my purpose as a woodworker, and evaluate your pricing model. If you charge for your work either as a professional or a hobbyist, what do you make? How much have you invested in making it? Um, what's your pricing model and what is it centered around? Um, is it centered around the hours that you work? Is it centered around a certain amount of overhead that you have to make up for? Or are you, you know, charging to try to stay competitive with uh, other woodworkers in your area who are making similar products? And I think this is going to be really interesting to hear. Do you offer any ways of adapting that price for people who can't afford things that they truly need? And what we'd like you to do is um, think about that, but then post it. Because one of the things that we want to do is we want to we want to try to get these conversations started and get people talking about them beyond the hour or so that we spend on the podcast itself. So, you know... Um, when you post about this on social media, use hashtag Arborvitae podcast or tag us in it or something so that we can sort of conglomerate all of these conversations together and we can teach each other and look at each other's experiences and glean something from that and talk to one another about it. Right. That's the beauty of this community is we're all learning from each other. Every one of us brings different experiences to the table and it's foolish not to really try and learn from each other. So you give some thought to this and you think to yourself, I'm at a loss. I've been struggling with this. I'm still struggling with this. Reach out to us. We might not have answers for you, but we can certainly help and point you in the direction of other helpful resources. Both Adam and I are avid consumers of online woodworking content so we know a thing or two about we might not have the answer but we're pretty sure we know where to find it and so (laughs) don't hesitate to ask us questions about our experiences or or even just ask other woodworkers that you know find them in your local community meet with them in person go to their shops go grab coffee talk to them, ask them questions, challenge each other. That's the beauty of the woodworking hobby. And this, this online community is it's brought those of us who have this shared passion together, where otherwise most of us were in a a little bit of isolation thinking I'm the only owner. I'm the only other woodworker out here. Right. And speaking of other woodworkers, I'm really, really excited because we're starting a new segment for the show today. I say new because last week it was, well, last last episode, uh, we mentioned some of our role models, but we kind of wanted to broaden it to include, well, we'll just come right out and say it. What we're calling this new segment is the featured craftsman. And what we want to do is we want to take someone who's out there in the community who has inspired us in some way whose work we admire or who is particularly generous with their uh time and information that they put out on social media 
um, someone that we want you to know about, and we want to highlight them on the show. So, um, Jonathan, why don't you tell them about our featured craftsman for today? So our featured craftsman is Mike Woods, and he is the Foresters Woodco on Instagram. We'll, we'll make sure you get a link there. But the reason I wanted to feature him is I've gotten a chance to meet him several times. Again, found him through Instagram. And for me, he's local. And it, he's a sawyer. He's got a chainsaw mill. And I assumed with all the awesome stuff that he does, this must be his full-time thing. You know, this must be his job. But it's not. Like most of us, it's this side thing. And he treats it as such. His full-time job, his family takes priority. But again, like I mentioned with Evan also, he's found ways to incorporate his family into it where he brings the, the kids along when he's going to go pick up a huge log and teaches them safety tips. You know, never be behind the the cable, things like that. And so they participate in delivering lumber, picking up logs, probably not in the milling. Definitely <laughs> didn't mention that part, but they know and appreciate their dad's talents and they go to the shop and hey dad cut this out for me and i had an amazing conversation with him we got it recorded what we'd like to do is put it out as kind of an extra episode on the podcast between now and the next episode that we record in a couple weeks here and i don't want to go into too much detail because I don't think anything is going to do it justice except for the conversation itself. Um, but right. I had a great respect and admiration for him going into the conversation. And the conversation really just validated everything I thought about him. He's an extremely generous man. Several of the crucifixes I have made have been walnut offcuts where he doesn't know what to do with it. And so he's just you know, given me some of these big chunks of walnut uh, because they're small, the perfect size for a crucifix, but you really can't do much else with them. You know, he didn't have to right. do that, uh, but it was that or the burn pile, right? So, you know, there's experiences like that that I've had with him that have just been really fulfilling. And I also, the beds that I made for the twins, the hickory, I got from him. And it was so cool listening to wow. him talk about the the joy that he gets out of milling and knowing how to cut the log and anticipating the grain pattern that he's going to see. And it's evident in the pieces that he has. You know, you you go to his his shop, you know, it's this huge barn. Um and you're not going to find wood there that you would find in the lumber store. The the boring, straight grain, no character type wood. Like, I'm sure that he has that because not every log is awesome, right? But mm -hmm. he takes pride in the work that he does. He, It's an art form. And I never realized that until listening to him talk about the process of looking at the log and thinking about how to cut it to 
bring out the most in the wood and it's evident in the pieces that I've gotten from him. So these hickory beds that I made, the design is very simple, but the grain is just incredible. And, you know, a very reasonable price for the materials. And every time I meet, meet with him, every time I stop by his place or he drops something off for me, always have a great conversation. So I wanted to kind of sh share that conversation that I got a chance to have with the rest of our listeners. So we'll get that posted here sometime soon. But if you don't already know who he is, definitely go check him out. And if you live mm -hmm. in Indianapolis or the surrounding areas, go check out his place. Go get some lumber from him. I mean, he's got a, a selection that's phenomenal. Um, and I'll be honest, I don't think I'll buy lumber any other way. Like, if you have a local sawyer in your area, find him and make him your source of lumber. Mm -hmm. You know, the one challenge is it's not going to be dimensioned and milled lumber. But he did that for me, too. Like, I don't have a... I don't have a planer. I don't have a joiner. And I wasn't about to hand plane 75 inches of hickory for the running boards for the beds. I did. Especially hickory. Yeah, I did the rest of it myself. <laughs> and that was tough. But I just was like, I'm not going to be able to do it. I don't have the tools. And I'm not going to go buy a tool just for this project when I don't have the money for it anyways. So he was happy right. to do that for me as well. But... Anyways, the conversation was phenomenal. I hope you guys get a chance to listen to it. Um, it's a great story of how I got started in the chainsaw milling world, you know, learning from his dad growing up and just a great guy. So we're excited to feature him and, you know, we hope you check him out, check out his work. And if you're local in Indianapolis, go get some lumber from him because he's got a great selection. Awesome. And we'll, we'll obviously put all his contact information and, and social media stuff in the show notes. And we'll also um, hopefully put a few pictures of those beds in there so that we can see that nice hickory green. Yeah. So so I think that pretty much wraps it up. We've covered, I think, I think what we wanted to. Uh, this has been a really fun episode, just like the last one. We hope that you guys enjoy it as well. In our next episode, we're going to be talking about practice and fortitude which is we talked a little bit about it in this episode but really getting into why practice is so important and how fortitude plays into that and persisting through the difficulties and the challenges overcoming complications and and obstacles and persevering mm -hmm. and and the beauty in that triumph at the, the end of a long fought you know, tough, hard battle with a tough piece of wood or a tough project and really the fruits of that, that persistence and that practice. So we look forward to that. In the meantime, as we've mentioned, there's going to be a lot of great content that's going to be both on Instagram as well as maybe a couple of small uh, podcast recordings. The conversation with Mike will also be out there. All of that be found on our website at arborvitaepodcast.com if you got any questions for us maybe you don't want to post it on social media feel free to reach out to, to us via email contact at arborvitaepodcast.com and again we're on Instagram and Facebook 
And then both Adam and I have our own kind of woodworking accounts that we keep separate from this. You can find me, Jonathan, at the Catholic Woodworker on Instagram, and Adam at Catholic Composer. Yeah, and on any of those methods of getting in touch with us, feel free to chime in about our challenge question for this week. Um, what do you make? How, how much have you invested? What's your pricing model? And do you offer ways of adapting that price for people who can't afford necessities? Because um, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to keep the conversation going. And thanks to everyone who contributed to the conversation in the first episode. That was great to hear from everybody. Yep. So with that, uh, we want to thank you for listening. And uh, we will see you next time. God bless. God bless.